Well, we're continuing our sermon series in Ecclesiastes this morning. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is where we'll be. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're actually going to be looking at verses 13 through 29 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So Ecclesiastes 7, verses 13 through 29, we'll read those in a second. But the title of the sermon this morning is called Navigating the Crooked Way. Navigating the Crooked Way. And throughout our study in Ecclesiastes, one thing that's been constant has been the preacher's realistic view of life under the sun. He hasn't sugarcoated the human experience. He hasn't tried to edit or whitewash life in a fallen world. It's hard, and there's, there's difficulty, and he's made that very clear. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that even though wisdom in the pursuit of righteousness, what, what he started talking about last week, though these things are good and fitting for those who fear God, wisdom is a good thing, he's going to say. However, we're going to see that even wisdom is limited in what it can provide or accomplish. As one commentator put it, wisdom cannot straighten out what God has made crooked. Wisdom cannot explain, and this this is the the part of the quote that I enjoyed, wisdom cannot explain why gangsters drive sports cars and good people go hungry and die poor. Why does God allow it? We don't know. And so you can be as wise as you want, and there's still going to be things that you can't understand in this life. We don't know because wisdom has its limits, and humans can never control or predict or ensure what, what's, what has happened or what is going to happen in God's world. Wisdom cannot explain why certain things happen or don't happen in this world. And so we need to be reminded of this truth, because if we're honest with ourselves, we're prone to think that, that God's world operates in a, in a specific manner. We're prone to think that if I do A, then B will happen. For instance... If I read my Bible, I'm going to have a good day today. If I do what is right, God will take care of me. If I raise my kids the right way, they're going to grow up to be Christians. If I pray more or more consistently, God will give me surely the opportunity that I'm waiting on. If I give lots of money to the church, God will repay me financially. If I just do the right things, if I honor God with my gifts, if I treat others the way I want to be treated, if I just follow the right path, then my life will turn out okay or right or the way I want it to. Right? That's how we're prone to think. If I do A, then B will happen. This is how we're prone to think. And sometimes we should note this is how things work, but it's not a guarantee. It's not how life works. It's not set in stone. That way of thinking is what I'm going to call or refer to as straight way thinking. If I do this, the result will be that. Straight way thinking, a straight line between my action and the God-ordained result. Right? So this, this, this straight line thinking sets a pattern that governs life. I can, I, it's going to go how I think it should go. And the problem we're going to see with this straight way thinking is that God's world doesn't always work this way. The problem with this straight way thinking is that sometimes, you need to hear this, sometimes God makes the straight way crooked. For instance, John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through the temple. They see a blind man. This man's been blind from birth. And his disciples ask Jesus, they say, hey, Rabbi, we see this blind man. Who sinned? Was it him or was this his parents? Why is he blind? Who sinned? Whose fault is it? Right? So the disciples are operating on this straightway thinking. This man has a problem. He's disabled. It must be a form of God's punishment, some type of wrong. He did something bad or his parents did something bad, so he's been punished. So Jesus, the disciples want to know, whose fault is it? 
Well, Jesus answered, it was, not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. It's no one's fault. But he's blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. The way is crooked. Jesus acknowledges that. He's blind, and he's been blind from birth. But it's not because of some sin. It's not some form of, form of punishment. It's actually part of God's bigger, more comprehensive glory-displaying plan that he has been born this way. So Jesus, Jesus goes against the straight way of thinking. The same could be said for, for the man Job. While, while Job's friends were convinced, you've done something. All of this tragedy has come on you because you've been unrighteous. You've done something wrong. But Job maintained his innocence, and he was right. He was righteous. He was upright. He hadn't done anything wrong to bring this about. He was just traveling a crooked way. A crooked way, which we find out at the beginning, had been laid by God. In a crooked way that Job says himself, God has done this. And this crooked way is a way that we don't think makes much sense. And it's a way that no amount of human wisdom could discern. It's not just biblical examples, examples, real life examples that, that, that took place in, in our time could be used. Think about church history, Protestant men and women killed for their faith by their governments who happened to be Catholic or pastors jailed for years in countries that are hostile to Christianity simply because they held, held firm to their faith. Or think of a, a young teenage girl who, who's recently been converted to Christianity. She's out in a swimming trip. She, she dives into what she thinks is deep water. It's shallow water. She breaks her neck and she's paralyzed her entire life. Just, just been converted. Or a young, bright seminary professor and pastor who, with a growing young family, his wife receives news she has cancer, and only a few years later she's dead, leaving him and his kids. Or a well-known Christian recording artist whose oldest son of 21 years old dies suddenly. Or a car accident where, where three generations are all killed, a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter, and then the husband of the mother and his two kids are left. Right? The examples could go on and on, crooked ways in this world. Life in a fallen world is filled with crooked ways. Some of you have been on crooked ways. Some of you are going to go on a crooked way. Some of you are in a crooked way now. Life is filled with crooked ways. And when I say crooked, I don't mean a morally wrong way. It's simply a way that, that doesn't make sense. We can't understand a way that we would change if we could. A crook in our lot, as one Puritan would define it. Well, I assume you've been there, and if not, you probably will be there at some point. And so we just need to wrap our mind around life is filled with crooked ways. And so this morning in our passage, the preacher wants us to know that life under the sun is always going to be filled with, with mixed things, with good and bad, with crooked ways. Life in a fallen world is filled with prosperity and adversity, sunshine and clouds. That's just the way it is. And knowing that is the first step to navigating this crooked way. And so that's what I want us to see this morning, how we can navigate the crooked way. So, so look at the verses. I'm going to begin reading our passage. You can follow along as I read, but I'm going to read in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. And I'll read through the end of chapter 7. You can follow along. Verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. 
In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Well, let's pray together as we begin. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, your inspired word, your powerful word, your correcting word, your uh, instructing word. I pray that we would be recipients of this living and active word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we, as we work through these verses, there's, there's four passages, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll work through these. I must say, if, if, if my phone starts going off and I'm looking at my watch, and it is my wife, I will wrap up abruptly and head home, okay? Um, but, Lord willing, we'll get through these this week. And so here's the outline. We'll see first in verses 13 and 14, the work of God... Followed by, secondly, verses 15 through 18, we'll see the puzzling life. Then thirdly, verses 19 through 24, we'll see the limits of wisdom. And then finally, our final verses, verses 25 through 29, we'll see the the preacher as he's considering humanity. So let's begin there, first two verses, verses 13 and 14, the work of God. So look there at verse 13. The preacher writes, consider the work of God. Consider. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And so at the foundation of this first verse is a, a worldview, a perspective of life under, on life under the sun. And this perspective in verse 13 must shape everything else. It's the main ingredient in navigating the crooked way. So in verse 13, the preacher calls for us to consider the work of God, to, to carefully observe how God operates in this world. And the underlying assumption of his call to us is that this is God's world. So consider the work of God. Consider how things work in his world. And by considering, he wants us to recognize that things operate, things move in God's world at the, as they do, they do so as part of God's work, part of God's doing. It's God's world. And so when life doesn't make sense, when it doesn't work the way you think it should, Instead of grumbling and complaining, the preacher would call you to consider the world you live in. This is God's world. Consider the work of God. 
to consider as we have taught our children that he's got the whole wide world where? In his hands. That's what he means. Consider. Consider the work of God. This is God's world. And as you consider the work of God, you consider what God has done. And the preacher wants you to ask, who can make straight what he has made crooked? In other words, who can change what God has decreed? Who can exert influence or authority over God and his work in this world? And the answer, I hope it's clear, is a resounding no one. This is God's world. We can't make crooked or make straight what he has made straight or made crooked. Whatever way you are on, you can trust that God knows aloud and even decreed your crooked way, and you can't change it. And that's good news, actually, because you live in God's world. The preacher is reminding us as travelers on this road that this world is a world that has a creator. And the creator is someone who is personally involved in his creation. This is God's word. He didn't just set it, all, set it in motion and, and take his hands off. God is personally involved in his creation. Therefore, any attempt for us to understand the world, any attempt for us to live wisely in this world must recognize that this is God's world and that it isn't a predictable machine, but a personally governed and complex space. God is not an object to be manipulated. You can't do A and guarantee B. That's not how it works in God's world. God decides if B comes, when B comes, and how B comes. We can't control it. God will not be manipulated. And so the wise person then is the person who successfully walks in this world, accepting the world as he or she finds it, receiving both straight and crooked, good and bad from God. I mean, I thought of a, an illustration. It's like the child, I haven't yet met this child, but the child who responds positively every time the parent makes a request, whether pleasant or unpleasant. So the, the parent makes a request, whether pleasant or unpleasant, the, the child responds, yes, sir, whether it's good or bad. Come in and clean your room. Yes, sir. Go upstairs. It's time for bed. Get your PJs on. Yes, sir. Get in the car. We're going to Dairy Queen. Yes, sir. Come home. We're going to watch a movie. Yes, sir. So pleasant or unpleasant, there's just a response of, yes, sir. That child recognizes, again, I haven't met that child. I hope one day to meet him or her. <laughs> but the, the point of illustration is to show that the child recognizes the authority of his parents and consigns his will to theirs. Good or bad, whatever you ask, Dad, I'll do it. I'm your child and I trust you. That child is like the Christian who recognizes that every way of our life, that every way and direction our life travels is under the direct care of God. It's like Job, who in the midst of a very tragic loss, cries out, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Yes, sir. I don't know why. I don't know why he's gone. I don't know why this has happened, but yes, sir. You're God and I'm not. Notice verse 14. Listen, listen to the preacher. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Notice it's assumed that there will be days of prosperity, there will be days of adversity. They're both coming. The preacher doesn't have room for a life that is perpetual prosperity. That life doesn't exist. Look at Jesus, look at the apostles, look at the history of the church. There is no life of perpetual prosperity. It doesn't happen, shouldn't be expected to happen. 
The preacher knows that there will always be days of prosperity and days of adversity, and some days will probably even fit in both categories. But the preacher says in the days of prosperity, the appropriate response is joy. If God is blessing, if God is prospering, the response is joy. That's how we are to respond. Yes, thank you, God. This is a good lot. Thank you. But the joy in the prosperity isn't because you did something right. It's not like I manipulated you in in such a way that I got what I wanted. No, it's you're kind. Thank you for this blessing. The joy is a result of God's unmerited favor that's being poured out on you in your time of prosperity. So the preacher says, be joyful in prosperity. But not all times, not all days are prosperous. Some days are full of adversity. The sun isn't shining. The birds aren't singing. Nothing seems right in the world. Loss fills your days. Depression, loneliness, fear. Whatever, you, whatever you've gone through, adversity comes. And Christians can live there, guys. You can. And it's okay to come here and feel that. I want us to sing songs that allow you to express that. In a fallen world, in life under the sun, there is going to be adversity, and we need to be a church that makes that okay. So don't feel like you've got to come in here and put on a smiley face and pretend like everything's fine. There are days of adversity. And so the preacher doesn't call you to be joyful on a day of adversity, but he does call you to consider, consider that the day of adversity has also come from God. You don't have to be happy with it, but you have to trust God in it. And so he wants you to consider that God's work in God's world always goes according to God's plan, whether adversity or prosperity. When the whole world is in his hand, nothing that we experience is outside of his plan. As Job would say in chapter 2, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? We can't cherry pick. We receive it from God, whether good or evil. Did you notice at the end of verse 14, the preacher says, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In God's world... The preacher is saying that prosperity and adversity are not predictable. They can't be anticipated or controlled. So you don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what the next week or the next year or the next 10 years hold for us. We don't know what comes after us. We only have here and now, and in God's world, only God knows every how and every why and every when. And so we trust God because he knows, and we can't. But this uncertainty that we can't know, we can't control, this doesn't lead us to fear or anxiety. Instead, it should teach us to leave our future in the hands of God. I mean, most of us would prefer to control our own destiny. Just ask my wife. Right? She knows when this baby's supposed to come, how this baby's supposed to come. She would love to be able to control it, but she can't. And so our response is to entrust our lives to the loving care of our sovereign God. Because if we're trusting him, we'll be well prepared for both good days and bad days. Because whatever comes, we're trusting him. And so this is, this is wisdom. This is the work of God in this world. After these first two verses, the preacher then further clarifies what living wisely in a, crooked, what living wisely in a world of crooked ways looks like. So look there at verses 15 through 18, our second section. So as he turns to verses 15 through 18, remember he's just, what he's just said about living wisely in the world and that it means considering God's work and recognizing that this is God's world. Okay, so he's just established that in verses 13 and 14. And in that context, he says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. I've seen the righteous man who dies in his righteousness. I've seen the evildoer who keeps living in his evil doing. And so 
Verse 15 falls right in line with the verses 13 and 14. And, and these are things that, that we think this shouldn't be. The righteous shouldn't die and the wicked shouldn't keep living. Right? It doesn't make sense. That's what he's saying. Here's, a, here's what I've seen. Here's an example. The good are dying and the evil are living. Gangsters are driving sports cars. Why, why is this happening? That's, that's what he's saying. As he observes the world in his, his vain or his brief or his surprising life, he's seen that, that it's not the straight way that's happening. It's crooked ways. And he's, he's supporting with eyewitness testimony what he's just said, that there are crooked ways. There's no rhyme or reason as to why the righteous perish and the wicked live longer other than God's crooked making plans. We can't explain it. We can't discern it. We can't understand it. Therefore, as appealing as wisdom might be, even wisdom is limited in that it can't figure out God's working in the world. Wisdom can't provide you with control or the upper hand on God in this world. Wisdom can't guarantee prosperity and long life. Righteousness can't guarantee prosperity and long life because the righteous, he says, are dying. You can't control it as, as much as you think. If I just get wisdom, if I just get righteousness, I'm going to live long life. I'm going to have a, a blessed life. Well, maybe, but maybe not. This is, this is how we can make sense of verses 16 through 18. So notice verse 16, he says, Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? That's one end of the spectrum. Other end, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So, so here's the spectrum. Don't, don't go in excess on either side. A preoccupation with righteousness, as if that's going to ensure or guarantee something from God, will place you above God. And so he says, don't be overly righteous. He's saying, don't be self-righteous, thinking, if I just accomplish this, if I just do this, then God will be in my debt, and he'll, he'll act how I think he's supposed to. So he's not saying, don't live a righteous life. He's saying, don't be preoccupied and self-righteous and overly concerned, thinking that, that you know better than God. Thinking that you're too wise, too righteous to have anything bad happen. The preacher is simply urging a realistic, balanced view of life. So don't be overly righteous, but neither should you be overly wicked. Don't be a fool. So he's going to, and later, earlier in Ecclesiastes and later, he's going to say, there is wisdom. Wisdom is preferable. At this point, he's just saying, there are two extremes. Don't be preoccupied with either. Of course, he wants wisdom and righteousness to govern life under the sun. However, even wisdom and righteousness are subject to the work of God. That's what he would have you know. You can't control God by, by pursuing wisdom and righteousness to its extreme. And in verse 18, though quite puzzling, right, so, so look there at verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. It's a, it's a bit of a puzzling verse. It has, it has quite a few interpretive suggestions, but I, I, I take it simply as a summary of verses 13 through 18. It's as if this verse 18 is a commentary on receiving the prosperity and the adversity. Simply receive both on recognizing that the good and the bad, the righteous life cut short and the evil life prolonged too long, all of it is part of God's work in God's world. Which means that the wise person, in this case the person who fears God, comes out from both. You're not, you're not thrown off when the righteous dies or the evil life is prolonged. You recognize this is God's world. And so the person who fears God comes out of both. And the only thing that can sustain is a healthy fear of God. What, what we'll see at the end of this book, that's the verdict. Fear God and keep his commands. And that's how we live in life of crooked ways. We'll come back to that at the end, but, but the preacher, after making this point, moves 
to, to verses 19 through 14, 19 through 24, and he further clarifies the nature of wisdom and humanity. And so he makes a turn. So look there at verse 19 through 24. So first, the preacher highlights the benefits of wisdom. So, so he wants you to say, well, wisdom is actually beneficial. It's helpful. It's a helpful asset to have in this world. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man and is more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And so wisdom gives strength that far exceeds political or military strength. That's what I say. Wisdom is a good thing to have. The preacher doesn't want you to downplay the blessing of wisdom. By nature, wisdom is good, but wisdom isn't the only card that he plays here. It isn't the only thing, thing that he wants you to see. So he says wisdom is good. It's good, and it gives strength, so it should be pursued. But verse 20, he also wants you to know the, the nature of humans who are called to use this wisdom. Verse 20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Okay, so he's laying out wisdom is good, but people are bad, right? And so people using wisdom is always going to be flawed and never going to be able to be used perfectly. So in other words, wisdom is great and gives strength. There's no one on earth who's... Even though wisdom is great and gives strength, there's no one on earth who's capable of perfectly exercising wisdom. So wisdom is limited by nature of who we are that are using it. Wisdom will always be mixed with folly. Righteousness will always be mixed with evil. That's the nature of humanity. And in verse 21, he drives it home in a really personal way. Right? In light of the nature of humanity, verse 21, he says, don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. So, so don't, don't walk too close to the door when, when you know people are talking about you. Don't take it to heart if you actually hear what they say. Don't get mad if you hear someone talking bad about you. Why? He doesn't say because it's okay for them to do that. Why? He says don't get mad because verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Right. Anyone here innocent of that? And so, so again, he's, he, his point... It's as if the preacher is saying, before you get going too righteous, before you get too righteous on your servant, before you get carried away acting like the all-wise one, how dare you talk about me like that? Remember that you too are part of a fallen humanity. You've been in the room talking bad about someone. Remember that you too have said things about others that you should not have. And the preacher isn't saying this to excuse a loose tongue. He's saying this to show that wisdom in the hands of fallen humanity will always be limited. Because we are fallen. And his conclusion in verses 23 to 24 is that wisdom will never plumb the depths of God's word. So he comes, comes to kind of to, to his senses. In verse 23, all this I've tested by wisdom. I've said, I will be wise. But here's the point. It was far from me. I couldn't get there. I couldn't be wise. I couldn't figure this all out. That which has been far, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? Again, no human can. That's his point. Wisdom cannot lead us to, to understand this world. Wisdom cannot help us discern God's workings in God's world. You can't go far enough or deep enough to plumb the depths of God or his working. So he says it, it's too deep for us. Wisdom is limited. However, to close out this chapter, the preacher does conclude with some things that wisdom has taught him. So again, it's like he's going back and forth. So, so wisdom is limited, but, but let me tell you, verses 25 through 29, some things we can learn from wisdom, specifically as it relates to humanity. So look there at verse 25. He says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things 
and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And so even though he knew the limits of wisdom, he still endeavored to know and understand things of how this world worked. And to his surprise, verse 26, and I found something, not good, but I found something more bitter than death. The woman, right? He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He says, this is what I found that's more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, before we can understand this, right, let me, let me make clear that the thing he found that was more bitter than death was not the woman, okay? This woman was part of the evidence of the thing that was more bitter than death. Just like, keep reading verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found, C, verse 29, this alone I have found. So I think this alone I have found, verse 29, is the thing of 26, more bitter, the thing that's more bitter than death. Namely, he continues, verse 29, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And so as he closes out this chapter, the point that he's making, the discovery that he's made that was more bitter than death, is that the human heart is, is scheming and, and going astray and depraved and evil. Though God made man upright. I think that's the thing that's bitter, more bitter than death, that the human heart is depraved. He's, he's found out through his search that humans are no longer in the upright condition in which they were created, but instead they seek out many schemes. They, they've gone astray. They, they try and figure it out. Indeed, at the conclusion of the preacher's search, it seems to be that the very search itself is part of the evidence of humanity's fallen nature. It seems to be that the very search itself is part of the evidence of humanity's fallen nature. It's as though the preacher realizes that his desire to figure things out, to find out the depths, to know how this works, is evidence that he's gone astray. Do you see that? And so his, his desire to know and understand and plumb the depths, one, tamer, one commentator calls an act of irreverence towards God. And so this search for meaning and significance on his own, apart from God, has led him to conclude, we're all doing this, and it is all evidence that we want to be God. We want to be above God. We want to know. Instead of fearing God, like Adam and Eve were, were called to do, obeying him. So, so in verse 26, back to the woman, his call about the woman, it, it is a telling d- discovery that he's made. It's reminiscent to the father in Proverbs 7, which is a great passage to to teach your young men. But in Proverbs 7, there's a father figure who who warns against the adulterous woman. And so here, the preacher is warning against a woman. And this woman seeks to trap and capture. And I think this woman is is simply a personification of of lust. This is the adulterous woman who entices, who, who seeks to to, to endear to herself, the, the passerby. And so this woman is, is deceptive and she seeks to capture the man. And, and any man, young man or old man, who struggled with sexual sin of any sort in the room knows the truth that this woman takes many forms. She looks like a lot of different things. And the fact that this woman seeks to trap and capture and even destroy a man through temptation, through causing him to sin, shows how corrupt the human heart is. 
And we can't miss the counsel there. But, but, but don't, don't miss that. There, there's a woman here who's seeking to destroy a, a man, both image bearers, both created to fear God and obey him. And one's seeking to destroy the other. We can't miss that. That shows how corrupt the human heart is. But, but we, sh- we should notice the counsel there in verse 26. The one who pleases God escapes her. The sinner is taken by her, but the one who pleases God escapes her. In other words, I think the preacher is saying that a Godward view in the midst of temptation is the way of escape. A Godward view in the midst of temptation is the way out. Looking to him, seeking to please him, is the way of escape that the preacher urges. While the alternative, the self-focused view, the selfish man, the sinner, is taken by her, and he goes into her. He's deceived by her, and he's destroyed by her. In fact, in Proverbs 7.23, the imagery is, 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 is pretty incredible. In, in 7.23, the man who succumbs to the temptation of the adulterous woman Proverbs 7.23 says that he rushes into a snare like a bird, not knowing that it's going to cost him his life. I mean, this is serious. I mean, this is great. If you have, if you have, if you have boys, if you have guys wanting to date your daughter, take them here. Take them here. Warn him. There is a woman. Lust seeks to destroy you. And your way of escape is a Godward view. But that's not all he says about humanity. Look there at verses 27 through 28. Verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Here's what I found. One, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And so the first thing to say, the first thing to say is that he has found that he can't find what he's looking for. He keeps looking and looking to try and figure it out to make sense of things, and he finds that no one is upright anymore. So I think that's what he means. And so, so the, in, there in verse, verse 28, the, I, one man among a thousand I have not found, but one woman among these I have not found. If you have the NIV, it translates upright. So it says one upright man, one upright woman. I think that's his point there, that I've looked for an upright man, an upright woman. I can find one upright man among a thousand. I can't even find an upright woman so I think he's just saying that, that uprightness among humanity is, is severely scarce. There aren't, there aren't any upright. Remember the, the larger argument that, that humanity, though created upright, have all gone astray. And so I think the adjective upright should be assumed with the man and the woman that he's looking for in verse 28. And I think that's right because his point is that humanity is corrupt. And so the ratio isn't to say there is one man among a thousand who's, who's upright. That's not his point. His point is to say, look... There's 999 that are not upright. And among women, not even one. Now, I, I get that. He, he's, not, he's not demeaning women here. Again, his point is saying that, that all are corrupt. I, I think, just a way of possibly understanding this, if, if the preacher is Solomon himself, we know a little something about the role that women played in his life. Right? And he was with thousands and thousands of, of pagan worshiping women. So we shouldn't be surprised he doesn't find an upright woman among those that he's with. Right? Maybe the one upright man was his father David. I don't know. But, but his point, again, is to say that, that uprightness among humanity is severely limited. That humanity has gone astray. And that's his point. That, that wisdom found and pursued by fallen men and women cannot make sense of life in this world. And so I want to close with, with two applications from this. The first one that comes immediately from that verse is simply the corruption of humanity. 
mean, I think that's one application here that we see as he closes. We must not pass over this, this final verdict too quickly, the verdict of verse 29. Because the verdict of guilty here is assigned to all people. But it's assigned here in Ecclesiastes 7, but it's also assigned to all people in Genesis 3 and everywhere that comes after until Revelation 22. And so this guilty verdict that's, 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 de, de, that's pro- pronounced here or declared here is not unique to Ecclesiastes 7. Fallen, depraved, corrupt, sinful, this is the state of humanity in this world. This is life under the sun. And this depravity, it's not selective. It's not limited to your hair color or your gender or your race or, your, or where you live. Right? It is not selective. It is all-inclusive. It affects you and it affects me. And you can probably see it pretty easily in others. But if you're honest, you should be able to see it in yourself too. This is, this is a disease that affects all of us. We have all gone astray. You all have sinned. And we're all guilty in God's sight. One well-known English journalist once said that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. And so he says the depravity of man is the most empirically verifiable reality, meaning if you just look around, you see it. it, It's out there in the open. Human depravity is easily verifiable. But at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact Human depravity is the reality in which we live. It's it's the verdict that touches all of us. But the good news that you should hear this morning, the good news that the preacher doesn't spell out explicitly here, is that there was, there would be, there has been one man who was righteous. There would be one man who would not be stained by the effects of sin, who would not be affected by the fall. And that one man would not be any ordinary man, but he would himself be God himself in flesh. There's one man, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the eternally begotten Son, takes on flesh, becomes a man, and he is the one, the only one, who can live a perfect and righteous and wise life. And he does it. He lives a life of complete obedience, no sin whatsoever, not even a hint of it. And this perfect man, this innocent man, is the good news here today for you is that this man is the only one who can deliver you and me from our dilemma of sin. He's the only one capable of rescuing fallen men and women, boys and girls. And this man, I hope you know, is Jesus Christ himself. He is the only way for you in your sin to be delivered. He's my only hope of deliverance from my sin. He is the way, the only way of salvation. Faith in him is the only remedy for the corruption of your sinful heart, for my sinful heart. Faith in this Jesus is the only way to be freed from slavery of sin. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, there's good news for you. There's hope for you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've come from, there's hope for you in the person of Jesus. You can continue either enslaved to your selfish, sinful desires, wrecking relationships, going through life with no joy or purpose. You can keep doing that, or you can turn to Christ in faith today, be saved, be rescued, be delivered, and experience eternal life now that will extend forever. 
Jesus is able and willing to save you if you would turn to him, trust him, put your faith in him. He is the righteous one, the only righteous one who can deliver. But the last point of application is simply to recognize what wisdom in God's world looks like. What can wisdom really achieve? What is it really for? The biblical answer is that wisdom can never achieve for human beings the kind of control over life and destiny that they aspire to. At all times, it is God who controls the times. At all times, it is God who rules the universe, and his ways are inscrutable. We can't make straight what he has made crooked. So wisdom in God's world recognizes that God's got the whole wide world in his hands and that he has the specific circumstances of your life in his hands right now. You are in his hands. Your circumstances, your life, your crooked way is in the care of your sovereign Lord and Father. And if your crooked way is at some point in the future, mark this down. That way is in his hands Wisdom in God's world guides us, yes, but it doesn't make guarantees. It is only God who knows all things completely, and it is only God who is able to make straight paths crooked. And in knowing him and in trusting him, we can rest safe and secure as we navigate the crooked way. Let's pray together.